One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 22, Owl Post Again. Harry, Hermione was tugging at his sleeve, staring at her watch. We've got exactly 10 minutes to get back down to the hospital wing without anyone seeing us. Before Dumbledore locks the door, okay, said Harry, wrenching his gaze from the sky. Let's go. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Last chapter of book three. And it has a lovely little ending. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this ending with you today. It does. And we're going to be talking about some extra things in our every flavored bean. And so you can join that conversation at patreon.com slash Harry Potter sacred text. We're going to be talking about whether or not the present that Sirius gives Ron was necessary. And if it was necessary, was it sufficient? I'm just also curious about like what other magical animal possibilities are there when gifting to a young wizard who has lost a beloved magical pet. I'm also wondering what standard we should hold as far as gift giving to someone who's on the run from the law. I think a pretty high one. Is it necessary and sufficient? That's, that's, exactly. That's a good question. Same standard, perhaps. <laughs> okay, Matt, we like to end every book with a conversation about love. And you are going to start us off with a story. 
What story do you have for us today? So, Vanessa, I think I've told the story or a version, a very short version of this story when I snuck in a conversation about love into one of our other conversations. But I'm going to fill out the story a little bit more and, and tell you about the first time I met this child named Lucy May, who happens to be a friend of Cammie's and the daughter of some good friends of Colette and mine. So the story takes place a little over 12 years ago. I know it was that long ago because Cammie was not yet born. Colette was pregnant with Cammie, only a couple of months pregnant with Cammie. And so I was going through a lot of the feelings of a person who was expecting a child in the next several months. And a lot of those feelings were feelings of anxiety and feelings of sort of you know, recognition that our life would be transformed in some fundamental way, but not knowing what those changes would be. And yeah, so it's sort of the normal feelings that one might go through in those situations. And at the time we were living in a dorm at Boston University, Colette was a hall director there. And so it was summertime, like it's summertime now. And summer school was happening, but it was a generally a more relaxed time. And so we would get together for lunch in one of the dorm cafeterias with other residential life staff at Boston University. And there was one couple who had just had a baby just a few weeks before. And the couple brought the child to the cafeteria for lunch where we all gathered every day to, to have lunch together and brought this, you know, like probably three week old child to the table and, you know, Colette and I were expecting, we knew that Colette was pregnant. And so, you know, we were sort of, when a baby shows up, we're thinking, it's hard not to imagine, boy, what's that going to be like? What's going to happen to us in seven months or whatever, when God willing, a, a child arrives. And I remember that Molly, the new mom, like said, hey, do you want to hold Lucy May? Why don't you hold Lucy May? And handed Lucy May to me sort of before I had the chance to register, like <laughs> whether I, what was going on. And I held her. And she was so small and so vulnerable. And I could just feel like this thing opening up inside of me. And I remember turning to Clinton saying, you know, if if Molly walked out of here right now and left this baby with us, like, I would love her forever. I would care for her forever. Like, it would just not be a question, not even be a, a hesitation. It would just be what I needed to do. And of course, that's not what Molly did. She took her baby back from me <laughs> once once she saw that craziness in my eyes and, and, and kept her baby for herself. And Lucy May has grown into a lovely friend of Cammie's. I think one of the things that I was anxious about before I had kids was like, where does that love come from? Like when a child comes in this world, I know I feel, I've been lucky to feel loved by my parents. But, you know, before you have a child or before you ha have one of those relationships, you wonder like, where does it come from? And, and this was a child that was not obviously our own, not one that we were expecting to be handed into our arms, but something about Lucy May's just vulnerability, the need, the, the need that she had for someone to care for her and the kind of possibility that I could be responsible for her. Like that is where the love came from, that kind of instinct of love. And I tell that story because, you know, when I think about love, one of the things I often think about is What's the relationship between love as a responsibility or love as a feeling, right? I think love is something we feel, but I also think love is something we do. And it's, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. Does the doing come first and then the feeling happens? Or does the feeling inspire the doing? I think they are bound up in each other. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can't tell you which came first when Lucy May was placed in my arms. Did I suddenly feel this upswell of feeling which made me want to care for her? if needed? Or did I just know that she needed to be cared for? And so I felt this upswell of feeling. And to some degree, I don't know if it matters which came first. Just holding those two things together is what's really important and at stake for me. 
Matt, I love that story. And I'm re- I'm really glad that you didn't baby nap Lucy May. Um, but <laughs> one of the questions that the Harry Potter series seems to be asking is, what does it mean to love a child, right? And what does it mean to not love a child well? Mm-hmm. And your story, I think, is so beautiful because, you know, one of the ways that you love a child well sometimes is by handing it back. <laughs> To its parents, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Sometimes loving a child means not holding it tight. Yeah. I think that's right. Letting it go, right? Yeah. I think the other reason I tell this story or why it's an important story to me is that I think one of the things that distinguishes love from other sorts of affection distinguishes it from things like esteem or admiration or even like certain kinds of friendship. I don't know. We had a friendship episode a couple of episodes ago. But like the only reason for love is that the beloved thing needs love, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do you love a child because a child needs love, right? You know, it's not like they handed Lucy May to me and then she immediately said something very wise or, <laughs> or, or you know, did a backflip and showed that she was an exceptionally talented child, although she has, happens to be one, right? Like, there wasn't like a gift that I was saying, oh, therefore you deserve my love. The only reason for the love was just, oh, here's a child that needs love. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why love is interesting and important as a singular form of care or a distinctive form of affection and care. Okay, Matt, I am going to show my love for our beloved audience by doing a perfect 30 second recap. Because that's what they want from us. That's that what they is come all here for. they want. That is how we show our love is by being excellent. Excellent 30 second recaps. Right. Yep. We earn it. We earn our, their love. Our perfection. That's right. Okay. Count me in. Okay. Three, two, one, go. So Harry and Hermione have to figure out how to get back into the hospital wing, and Dumbledore does this amazing thing where he's talking to Harry and Hermione from three hours ago, and he turns around and he's like, hi, how did it go? Which I feel like is some impressive, like, looking away from cognitive dissonance, and I'm very impressed by it. Snape and Fudge come down, and they're like, how did Sirius get away? And they're like, tee-hee-hee, and then they go and they chill, and they talk to Hagrid, and Lupin has resigned, and so Harry goes and says goodbye to Lupin, and then Dumbledore does meaning-making, meaning-making, and I'm going to hand it over to you, Matt, because I hit 30 seconds. Okay, great. But I think I might just, instead of picking it up there, I think I might just do the whole thing and also probably not have enough time. (laughs) Okay, Matt, on your mark, get set, go. So Harry and Hermione are like, oh my gosh, we don't have much time to get back to the the hospital wing. So they go to the hospital wing and they're saying 10 minutes, five minutes, three minutes. And then they get there and Dumbledore is there and he's like, oh, let me let you in. You just left. They they go in and then Snape and Fudge come down and Snape is screaming and Fudge is like, he's a little bit unhinged. And then Haggard comes and they go see Lupin and Lupin says, sorry, I have to go. And Dumbledore comes and Dumbledore says, you know, maybe your father's inside you. And then then they get back on the train and they're leaving and they get the the owl comes and, and they get a note from Sirius and then freak out Uncle Vernon. Oh, my God. You're so good. I am much better than I was when we started this three whole books ago. And I will say that my anxiety before has diminished considerably. For those 30 seconds, it's still, it's it spikes. It spikes for those 30 seconds. But that's okay. I can manage that. So, Vanessa, I think I want to start talking about love in this chapter in sort of the place where our conversation about my story ended. Mm-hmm. Because there's there was a moment that I found kind of... Poignant or interesting, which is when Harry, Ron, and Hermione learn from Hagrid that Lupin has resigned. Mm -hmm. So just to remind our listeners, Hagrid has come to inform, I'm making scare quotes, listeners, inform Harry, Ron, and Hermione that Buckbeak escaped. There was some 
wonderful accident where Buckbeak was able to escape from his binds and fly off. And Hagrid has been celebrating all night. And oh, by the way, also, did you hear the big news? Lupin is a werewolf, and he was out all night last night as a werewolf. And for that reason, Lupin is resigning. And, you know, this causes some distress to Harry, Ron, and Hermione because they obviously have come to value Lupin in more ways than just as a teacher, but also just as a teacher, as the best Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher that they have yet had. They don't want Lupin to leave. And Harry says, I'm going to see him to Ron and Hermione. And then we have unattributed dialogue from two people in the text. Like one person says, but if he's resigned, and the other person says, doesn't sound like there's anything we can do. And Harry says, I don't care. I still want to see him. I'll meet you back here. To me, that's a loving action and a loving sentiment, right? I'm not going because I can fix it. I'm not going because I can do something about it. I'm not going because I feel like my presence is going to change the outcome here. I'm going because I just want to be with Lupin and tell him in so many words, right? Or maybe not in so many words, that I love him and that I'm grateful for him. And that even if he's leaving, I still respect him. All those things, right? It's not because of what can be done. It's just because because of who he is. And that that's pointed to that same thing about like love not being something that is earned or not being about what you do. It's actually just because the person is there. And Harry goes just because Lupin is there. Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful example of love. And it almost feels as though Harry doesn't know why he was going, right? It turns out that to some extent he's going to say goodbye and to express to Lupin that he thinks that this is unjust. But it's just this, I need to sit with him. I need to see him. I need to lay eyes on him. And that, right, like sometimes I think love feels magnetic in that way of just, like, I just need to be near them. And many things are interesting about the conversation that Lupin and Harry and it turns out Dumbledore have. But, you know, Dumbledore joins this conversation and Dumbledore is in part coming to walk Lupin to the gates, right? To show Mm -hmm. some sort of solidarity that, you know, even though Lupin is leaving Hogwarts, I still care about him. And I think part of loving again, just like in your story, sometimes part of loving is letting go. Lupin is like, I want to see myself out. And yep. Dumbledore respects that, too. And so this right. this dynamic between the three of them, I think, is really beautiful and is showing a bunch of different nuances about love. I think that's right. I hadn't really thought about that aspect of the, of the, the conversation among the three of them. But you're right. Dumbledore shows up to show some solidarity. But he doesn't give Lupin the solidarity that Lupin doesn't ask for. <laughs> Right? right. He's like, maybe Lupin wants this. Maybe I ought to do this to show Lupin that I'm here with him and stand with him and can walk him to the gates. But when Lupin says, "You, I'm going to walk out by myself because that's what I need, Dumbledore's like, okay. Yeah. Not like, no, let me walk you to the gates. No, it's important that I walk you to the gates. It's just right. like, okay, right? Yeah. The other thing that I find utterly charming about Lupin in this moment is that we find out that he took his teaching responsibilities seriously and was loving Harry as a teacher, which in yeah. part meant holding on to the Marauder's Mat and maybe not giving him back the invisibility cloak immediately. And he's yeah. like, hey, dude, I'm not your teacher anymore. So guess what? Here's the Marauder's Map. Here's your invisibility cloak. And we, I hope, will run into each other again and have this new dynamic. Yeah. And as my kids get older, that is something 
that I, I know is really hard to navigate, right? There are moments that with Ellen, I feel like I can talk to her really as an equal, right? Like she's yep. 14, she's a, an adult person. And then there are moments where I'm like, wait, right? Like you're a child, I have more responsibility yeah. here. I have more power here. And it does, it feels like shifting gears. And I yeah. love how quickly Lupin A shifts gears and B says, this relationship is going to continue. I'm not your teacher anymore, but the relationship is going to continue. Yeah, and something poignant in that, too, because I thought in that moment when he says that to Harry, I thought there was this kind of collegial thing, like, I'm not your superior in the same way now, and so we're coming in a different relationship. But the subtext of that also was, Peter got away, mm-hmm. and this isn't over, and we are going to be kind of comrades in arms in the future, perhaps, where we are going to have to fight alongside each other rather than me teach you how to fight, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is, of course, what comes true. And I think that, you know, I don't, obviously, they don't know the future in this moment. And that's not fully realized. But I thought there was a little bit of subtext in that, which is like, you know, we we ha- sort of have to transition to this next form of relationship because of what has transpired the last few days and what we fear may be coming. Yeah. The other thing that Lupin does is he told the kids the night before, I should have told Dumbledore that Sirius was an animagus. And it's something about like saying it to children. I feel like that makes it click for him that that is important. And he did that. We find out in this chapter that he went up to Dumbledore and was like, just so you know, (laughs) like in case this becomes relevant later, he's like made something right that was a mistake you know, 15 years ago. And I think one of the things that I love about Dumbledore is the complete and utter forgiveness, seemingly, right? His responses, that was pretty impressive of him, right? And it's at this point, like, what can he do? Peter has escaped. Sirius has escaped, right? And like, James is dead. And so I feel like Dumbledore has this maturity and this wisdom of now there's nothing I can do. Rather than, I can imagine being really pissed Yep. At at Lupin for not saying something, knowing that Peter was a rat would be really helpful, let alone right. that, you know, that Sirius could be breaking into the castle. And there just seems yeah. to be this like, there's nothing to do about it now. So why, why belabor it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is not a an episode on forgiveness, on the theme of forgiveness, but I think forgiveness and love are pretty closely related. And I yeah. one of the things I think forgiveness does in which, as you described, I think Dumbledore is doing here is just trying to say like, okay, what do we actually need to face the world we have, right? Rather than focusing on the world that might have been had we done things differently and then acting to punish those who kept the world from being that way, instead thinking about with the world we have now, how do we move forward in the safest and best and most caring and careful way possible? And surely that means enlisting the help of people like Lupin and Sirius Black, (laughs) right? Surely that means making sure that those folks are able to support you and you're able to support them. And so he's able to kind of let go of of some of the intuitions towards resentment or punishment for the sake of saying, these these two folks are going to have to be part of this fight. And so how do we help them become part of it, right? Yeah, this is just like the wisdom of Dumbledore to me. I would be so pissed. I would be so pissed. Yeah. I justify anger as like a form of respect, right? That like... I expected more of you. You are someone who knows better, should know better. And therefore, my anger is essentially saying, I respect you enough to hold you to a high standard. 
And I don't know if Dumbledore doesn't also sometimes get that way, but I think that the real wisdom of Dumbledore is you've already beaten yourself up about this, right? Like, and so let's not stress it. But I don't know. Do you think that sometimes anger is a way to show love? Is 100%. Yeah, yeah. I think that if forgiveness is a gesture of love, then you can be angry when loving, right? Be angry when forgiving. And, you know, I think that we see this in, you know, elsewhere. We're not going to learn this for a couple of books. But when we hear Dumbledore's reaction to Snape after Lily is killed... Right. Dumbledore, I think there's some anger in his reaction. He's like he's recognizing a real failure in in Snape. And he says, like, this is how you are going to figure out how to live with this and how to make some amends for for your failures. Right. And I don't know what he said to Lupin or what he said to Sirius when he learned these details about the fact that they were animagi. I think you're right. I think that for how much somebody like Sirius has suffered and Lupin has suffered, maybe he was willing to kind of not articulate that anger the way he might to somebody else. But I also think even if he felt it and expressed it to them, it's probably not the moment to express it to Harry, right? <laughs> to say like, boy, and boy, I really let him have it, Harry. I think that <laughs> in, this, in, in this moment, I think that, you know, he probably keeps the right level of calm with Harry. But no, I think your point is absolutely true. I think that, that anger as a, an emotion is absolutely crucial and absolutely part of love. It's what we do with that anger, right? Like, I think, I think I've spoken about this before. But there's this 18th century English philosopher named Joseph Butler who talks about anger and in a sermon on love, right? And what he says is like, you know, I get angry at my children when they do things that are risky or dangerous, right? That's natural. I should feel that. That's that's an important emotion because that signals to me when something dangerous or risky is happening. The, The question is, what do I do with that feeling? If I subject my child to risk or abuse, because of that anger, then I'm, I'm just making the problem worse. You can feel the feeling and then decide, okay, now it has signaled to me that there's something wrong here. Now, what do I do about that, about that wrong? And so it's, that, it's sort of the loving thing. This is what Butler would say. I think this is what you're saying Dumbledore is doing. And I think you're right. The loving thing is when you feel the anger to decide, okay, the anger is telling me something is wrong here. Now, what am I going to do to try to repair that wrong? Yeah, that's something um, a friend of mine was in town this weekend, and she is a somatic management coach. And she was just like, yeah, as soon as you notice any of that in your body, right? Like somatic coaching is about learning how to notice when yeah. your body is having a reaction and either yeah. pausing or right, like quickly making a decision about how you're going to behave, noticing that emotion rather than letting the emotion dictate how you're going to behave. And she's like, emotions are information, <laughs> right? Like they're fair exactly. and they're information. That's right. And it's about analyzing that information of like, Right. As as quickly and responsibly as possible. Right. And I think the loving thing with respect, you know, to the theme that we're thinking through with this chapter is is to commit to saying, when I get this information, I'm going to try to do the thing that promotes care for the person I'm dealing with. Right. right. That promotes their well-being and their flourishing. Right. Especially when you feel emotions like anger, when you get that information, sometimes it takes that moment of pause to say, like, OK, what is the thing that actually helps me love this person? And we also see other characters in this chapter kind of taking that moment of pause, right? Like we see at the end of the chapter when Hermione's like, guess what? I'm dropping muggle studies and Mm -hmm. I'm dropping divination. Like this is like (laughs) self-care, right? She had this affective experience, this emotional experience. I'm excited about all the things I can study and all that I can learn and all that I can excel at. And she just chased down that emotion and 
kind of ran herself ragged this year by doing too much. And she's been able at the end of the year to take a pause and say, like, you know what? I'm not going to study these things. <laughs> it's a moment of pause. It's like, it's like, yeah. okay, I have the emotion. Now I'm going to analyze that information and pause and say, like, okay, here's what I can actually handle. And I'm going to do that because I want to take care of myself. Like, that's the loving decision here to kind of let go of some things that she might otherwise want to study. Yeah. Oh, that was a bad idea. That was a bad way. My body is responding right. to this poorly. Right. Right. It's so funny, Matt. I feel like this is the difference between you and me sometimes. You were like, and Hermione. And I was like, and Snape. He does not <laughs> pause. He's not like, ooh, I'm very angry. Maybe this is about a childhood right. trauma. Maybe something interesting is going on here that I don't fully understand. Instead, he's like, what? I'm pissed, right? He is very yeah. excited about the idea that Sirius will be getting the Dementor's kiss. And he is livid that Sirius has gotten away. And it is a, a chapter where I have complicated feelings in regards to Snape. It is really upsetting to me that he all but knows for sure that Sirius is innocent, right? He at least had every opportunity to educate himself on the topic, which as soon as you have the opportunity to educate yourself, that is like willful ignorance, which I think is is as much of a crime as knowing the information and acting against it. And so his desire to have Sirius murdered, even though he has every reason to know that Sirius is not himself a murderer, is really profoundly disturbing, Yeah. rather than flying off the handle and going screaming and accusing a 13-year-old. He should pause and be like, what is the loving thing here? What else is going yeah. on here that I'm not understanding? Yeah, 100%. Right. I think you're right. I mean, what, what Snape ought to know or ought not to know at this point, especially with it only being like an hour or so after Snape thinks he's caught them, is something we could discuss. But at the very least, he, he kind of gives himself away when he says to Dumbledore in this chapter, he says something like, you know he's capable of this kind of murder because of what they did to me, right? Like showing his hand and saying like, actually, this is all leftover resentment from when they almost pulled a prank on me that could have resulted in my mauling or death because Lupin was a werewolf. Like all this other childhood stuff is caught up in it. So we see why he's not curious about what Dumbledore and the children believe, why he's so willing to allow Sirius to suffer a fate worse than death, really, right? Not just murder, but actually to have his soul consumed by the Dementors. These understandable affective experiences which are arising in him as a result of childhood trauma and unprocessed grief and all these things, those emotions are arising in, in him, but he's not doing the work that you've invited us to think about doing, Vanessa, of like pausing and saying, okay, now I have more information. What do I do with it? How do I actually care for people? And that leads to him screaming at, at children in a hospital wing. Well, and just this desire to watch Sirius get killed. Like, I understand yeah. that it's childhood trauma and that one of yeah. the definitions of trauma is that you, it comes up and you relive it. However, being a 35-year-old man and wanting someone dead because of a, yeah. a vicious prank, but a prank that they played 15 years ago. Yeah. Again, like, Trauma is real, but there is some point at which the responsibility is to process your trauma enough so that you can walk through the world a loving person. Yeah. 
you know, it's not up to me to tell people when they have to process their trauma and how they have to process their trauma and that there's an expiration date. But this kind of ill wishing for someone to such an extent is just deeply, deeply troubling to me. And then Dumbledore not taking this as a sign that something needs to change with Snape is also troubling to me. The fact that he doesn't say, hey, Snape, let me talk you through what happened. (laughs) Actually, you're not wrong that Harry did this, but he did this with my instruction and my blessing. And you yelling at the kids was not helpful. Again, like this doesn't have to be on the page, but I do think some sort of hint about it would be really helpful. You do not get the sense that Dumbledore brings him into the conversation or thinks about how to be loving to Snape. He Dumbledore yeah. treats Snape like a chess piece, and someone is going to get more and more upset the longer that you do that. But don't you think, I mean, certainly in this moment, I mean, Dumbledore's sort of dismissiveness, you know, oh, he's he's a person who's suffered a grave disappointment. Is he, Like, that sounds, it trivializes both Snape's rage in that moment and and what Snape was hoping for like the disappointment he experienced, right? And again, I think maybe he's doing that to kind of keep things even keeled for the sake of the children who were there. But it's still, you're right. I mean, for me too, it sort of landed the wrong way. I don't know that Dumbledore doesn't reveal all this information to Snape at some point. You know, by the time Dumbledore dies yeah, in, you know, book six, it seems like Snape is pretty much his closest confidant about his plans. And by that time, Snape is working with the Order of the Phoenix. And the Order of the Phoenix, you know, had been in previous books working with Sirius and Lupin and all these. They, they are allies, even if if uncomfortable ones. I wonder if by that time, Dumbledore hasn't had this conversation with Snape. And then maybe this is just Dumbledore saying, like, I, I can't have the conversation with him now because he can't pause right now. Yeah. And so I, when I have a chance, we will talk through this and I'm going to let him get there but it's no use trying to do that now. I, I don't know. You know, I'm the Dumbledore apologist, so so yeah. this all might be me defending too much. But but it seems to me that that at some point, Snape would have had to be, have been brought into what exactly happened and why for them so. to be the sort of confidants they are at the end. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. In book five, Snape is coming in and out of Grimald Place and he right. and Sirius are not murdering each other. So That's right. That's right. I mean, they don't like each other. <laughs> right. No. But... But that's sort of like this moment of pause that you're describing about. Oh, I'm having this active experience of intense dislike. What do I do with that? And how do I how do I do the most loving thing and respond to it, right? Which is not murder. <laughs> Which is not murder. Work together to try to, you know, suppress the 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 forces of, of evil in the world. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Matt, if we're going to talk about love in this chapter, we have to talk about this conversation between Dumbledore and Harry, which I am a total sucker for all these conversations. The end of every book, I'm like, ah, it's time for the Dumbledore meaning making part of the book. And I just I love it every time I fall for it every time. The big moment to me of love is when Harry says I was so silly. I thought it was my dad who saved me. Mm -hmm. And. And even just, I think, sharing something embarrassing with someone, like talking about meta information, right? Like it's an act of reaching out, right? It's it's mm-hmm. a form of confession that is asking for care, right? You're essentially asking for someone to either laugh with you or tell you that it wasn't embarrassing, that it, it came from a, a real place. And Dumbledore says, like, it makes total sense. I know you hear this a lot, but you look just like your dad. And like your dad did come out of you tonight. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a loving act to point this out, but also, right. He's saying like your father's love is still in you. And in a way that I find really touching. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I, I'm also a sucker for those Dumbledore meaning making. Let me explain to you how this all works morally (laughs) and spiritually at the end of this book conversations. That's probably why I defend him so much and maybe too much at times. Yeah, I just really love this conversation, too. And it also, it makes me think about, like, it makes me think more about what love is to do my own meaning making about love. You know, a lot of the listeners, probably all listeners to this podcast know that I'm a Christian and a Christian priest. But my own religious experience is more complicated than than just that label. As you know, Vanessa, most of my family is Buddhist because they're from Japan. And particular there are this kind of buddhism called shin buddhism and i was listening to this shin buddhist podcast <laughs> the other week and this shin buddhist priest who i admire was talking about sort of 
what it means when we say that people live in you after their death, right? And what he said, and this is an interesting kind of tension within the Harry Potter books, is, you know, he said one of the benefits of Buddhism is not really believing in a stable self or in a soul, which persists after death, is you can think about things like who I am is actually the effect I have on others. Mm-hmm. Who I am is actually how how I impact others and how their lives are transformed by me. And so he says, like, when you smell a recipe or when you smell cookies baking and you remember your your grandma, that's that's who your grandma is, right? Like that effect upon you is real. It's just as real as it ever was before. And so her effect upon you is real. And so it's right to say that she still lives in you because that's who we are. Who we are, our impacts upon others. And even though Harry's dad is a person Harry cannot remember except in sort of the ethereal, dreamlike, magical memories of a one-year-old, the impact of these parents upon him are absolutely real. And what's beautiful about the the series is that it can be made visible through something like a Patronus, right? Like, he can actually see, oh, there it is. I think those of us who live in the muggle world yeah. have to feel those effects in, right. like, the smell of chocolate chip cookies or in, like, a memory that arises when we read a passage in a book that someone who we loved mm-hmm. read to us once. Like, these things are a little harder to grasp for us, but the beauty of the the picture we're given here is that it takes form, it takes shape as this stag in front of Harry and that... It becomes a place, a visible place that Dumbledore can point to and say, that's what it looks like, Harry. Yeah. But it is what it looks like for those of us who have smelled those chocolate chip cookies or got a tear in our eye when we're reading a poem or something. Yeah. Vanessa, now we're going to do our spiritual practice. And we are going to, once again, do Pardes. Are you ready to lead us through Pardes with a sentence from the chapter? It would be an honor and a pleasure. The sentence that I picked is, As the end of term approached, Harry heard many different theories about what had really happened, but none of them came close to the truth. Hmm. Good sentence. Isn't it? I'm very good at picking sentences. And that step one of Pardes is shot, where we ask ourselves what the intended meaning of the sentence is. So what's going on in the chapter right now is the crisis and the the dust up in the hospital wing has ended. And now it's the next morning and folks are sort of reeling from all the news. And so there are, it's what the sentence says, literally, like there are a bunch of people who don't know what happened. They're speculating about what ha- what happened. And imagining the possibilities for what happened. But the few people who do know, right, which is maybe Harry more than anybody, because he and Hermione were the only ones who were there for both versions of it throughout, <laughs> right? They know what happened and, and know the truth, right? And so the sentence is describing sort of this, the experience of Harry and Hermione knowing the truth, not being able to talk about it, and all these wrong theories circulating around them and their just sort of having to not weigh in about what the theories are and what they mean. Yeah. And it's also interesting. You wonder what information they did have that leads them to believe that something happened, right? Like, yeah, I guess the thing that people think happened is that Lupin ran around as a werewolf. But and Buckbeak's gone. Buckbeak's gone. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's information. But they don't know anything that's about Sirius being there, do they? I don't think so. Gosh, that's right. I, I was thinking that they all knew that Sirius had been there when I read through it. But I think you're right. Why would anyone know that Sirius came to campus 
and then was locked in the tower and about to be executed and then escaped. They wouldn't know that stuff. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly no one thinks that Harry was involved, which I think is another difficult thing about a trauma, right? Is that often we don't want to tell people about it. And I feel like this is an experience that you and I have talked about before on the podcast. But when someone's died, who you love, you're walking around and I'm like, how are you not how are you not behaving as though the world is different? The world is different. And I feel like Harry is walking around completely yeah. changed by all of this information. And he has to just walk around like nothing is different. Yeah. And actually hear misinformation and like not correct people. Yeah. That's right. I think also a different experience for Harry because the last two times the year ended with a big cataclysmic event, like Harry was directly involved and everybody knew he was involved, right? And this time, Harry's involved and no one knows he's involved. It's just the big year-end cataclysmic event. And so it's a different experience for him, too, to kind of both be outside it, but really inside the, the same circumstance. So, Matt, it's time for step two. And and Raish is for Remez. And Remez means hint. And so we take a word from the sentence and we take it as a hint for other things in the chapters. We trace it throughout the books. And so what word would you like to do? I'll, I'll read the sentence for you one more time and you can pick. Okay. As the end of term approached, Harry heard many different theories about what had really happened, but none of them came close to the truth. I think that I wanted, I would like us to think about theories. Ooh, theories. Okay, great. What theories are there in the Harry Potter series, Matt? Where does theories come up? I don't know if the exact use of the word is prominent mm-hmm. in, the, in any book, but I just feel like from the beginning of book one to the end of book seven, Everyone's just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Like, how did this boy survive? How how did the boy who lived? What? How did this happen? Right. And then when when at the end of book one, when Voldemort takes life underneath Quirrell's headwear, they're like, "Well, how, oh, he's back. How could he be back? Where was he?" And then and then book two was backstory for for Tom Riddle and like all through the whole thing, people are developing theories to try to figure out what's happening so they can actually take meaningful action on the ground. And so this kind of conversation, the the wizarding community of Hogwarts Castle, the student community of Hogwarts Castle, all coming up with their theories about what happened last night is kind of a more innocent version of what the whole wizarding community has been doing since book one and will continue doing, which is like, what is going on? Something weird has happened. How should we respond to what has happened? We don't know because we don't know what happens. So let's come up with a theory so we can take some action. And, you know, some people do that really well and some people do that really poorly, especially as we're going to see starting next book, right? (laughs) Books four, five, six. Then you'll see people starting to develop theories and then also attaching themselves to those theories pretty fiercely, sometimes at the expense of, of others' safety. Yeah, of seeing the actual truth. Yeah. Matt, the two places that theory comes up in this book, other than in the sentence, are theories as to how Sirius is getting in the castle. And one of them is Dumbledore saying, all I have are theories, but one of them is more ridiculous than the the next. And then the other is kids theorizing about how Sirius can be getting into the castle, but nobody being able to guess. And what's interesting about that is that someone in the castle knows, knows. Right. There is someone in the castle who knows for sure. But in your list and conversation, it was just occurring to me how much of our lives is about theorizing. Right. It's like 
will this person want me to ask them this question? Is it supportive and generous or is it prying? Will this package from the bookstore arrive today or will it arrive tomorrow? Right? Like we spend a lot of our lives theorizing. Yeah. It's like a great human thing that we do is walk around theorizing about the best way to live, whether or not there's a God, whether our dogs don't feel well. It's related to our capacity for imagination, I think, which is directly related to to these books and what we're trying to do with them, right? Like, how do we make sense of these things that don't make sense? And how can making sense of them help us to live live better? Matt, and I, I know that this example is coming to my mind because I'm already looking forward to book four, but when Harry comes back with Cedric, right? That is when a lot of theories start. And that is where the conversations start, you know, at the beginning of book five, theorizing is Harry sort of a bad guy, right? Or is he on the right side of things? And it's the bigger the piece of evidence, maybe the wilder the theories get of this beautiful boy's body arrives at the end of book four and wild speculation begins. And sometimes theories, I think, is the work of, like, earnest attempts at meaning-making. But then we see someone like Rita Skeeter, and that is not what it is, right? Like, it is wild speculation and exploitation of a piece of evidence. Yeah. So, Matt, step three is drosh. And the question is, what would you preach if this was your, you know, piece of scripture on a Sunday? And I'll read it to you once more. As the end of term approached, Harry heard many different theories about what had really happened, but none of them came close to the truth. You know, I think I want to, I would preach something based upon an idea you had or a reference you made from the last step, which is when the whole staff is speculating how, about how Sirius is getting in the castle, Dumbledore says, all I have are theories, each one more ridiculous than the last. And then the other thing you said, which is about like, Theories are what a lot of us have all the time and ground a lot of the way we move about in the world. I think what's interesting with Dumbledore there is that he he knows that they're just theories, right? He knows that they have to take action based upon incomplete information. That's having only theories isn't an excuse to do nothing. But I think there's also sort of a a responsiveness or a mental agility to saying like, oh, this thing that I believe is just a thing I believe. It can be proven wrong by events. And I can actually, you know, things can go wrong if I cling too hard to a thing that's only a theory when actual events tell me I ought to be thinking a different way. And so taking that initial step and saying, okay, all I have are theories. Let's remember that they're those things as I make my way forward. I have to act on one of them, and so I'm going to, but I also have to be willing to let go of them. Just sort of a kind of an intellectual restraint or humility. I think that's some of what Dumbledore is doing then, and I think that's what I try to preach on if I had this line as as the basis for a sermon. How about you, Vanessa? I think I would talk about endings as the end of term approached. That Mm. there's something about, right, like part of what the students are doing is try to make meaning of the year that they had, right? There's something about endings that makes us behave differently. And I remember once when I was, you know, studying pedagogy to become a teacher and one of the professors said, you have to make sure to end the school year well, that an ending is a huge part of the impact that a school year will have on your students. And the thing that I decided to do was essentially say goodbye to each individual student. Like, you know, I made them like line up on the last day of school and 
say goodbye at the door to each of them sort of individually. And I think I would talk about how that's not sufficient that I, right? Like, I think I should have invited them into reflection or I think that there are ways to end well Hmm. and that ending well is important. When something is ending, you're going back to something else or you're going to something else. And I think we give a lot of thought as to beginnings and not as much thought to endings. And yeah, I would just talk about reflecting on what it means to say goodbye well. You know, we hear, oh, I'm not good at goodbyes. But the purpose of a goodbye is to send someone off into whatever's next. Yeah. Well, Matt, the last episode, your favorite. And so I'll read this to you one more time and we'll see if a soda emerges. As the end of term approached, Harry heard many different theories about what had really happened, but none of them came close to the truth. A soda immediately emerged to me, Matt. Really? Yep. Let's hear it. Someone could have guessed exactly what objectively happened. Someone could have said, you know, I'm pretty sure that that rat that Ron thought was dead was actually the animagus of someone who we all thought was dead named Peter Pettigrew. And he escaped and Lupin was a werewolf. Someone could have guessed like that level of detail and it wouldn't have rung emotionally true for Harry. No matter how Hmm. much the facts could have been correct, none of it would have come close to the truth anyway. You can know that a friend's parent died, but not know the emotional place that they're in, right? That often when you know the facts, you don't actually know the truth. Yeah. For Harry, the truth is he just lost Sirius and he's about to lose Lupin. Mm -hmm. Like that's, the theories don't explain that, right? The theories don't explain that. And like you said in your excellent sode that I'm stealing, if a student had guessed exactly right, and even if they had persuaded everyone else at the school that they were exactly right through some feat of magical evidence or something, the, the truth is, experientially and emotionally for Harry, what's happening is he just lost Sirius and he just lost Lupin, who were the two people who were maybe closest to his parents and were most likely to be kind of parental figures to him. He had them for like a moment and then now they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for doing parties with me. Thank you, Vanessa. That was great. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemail is from Eileen. Hi, Matt and Vanessa. I was just listening to your most recent episode, and Matt's selection of a florilegium hit me hard with its imagery of bloody light and long shadows. You discussed it in light of things to come, but I think that awful imagery was caused by the failure of justice those children just witnessed. We saw it in the previous book with Hagrid's arrest, but here the ministry has decisively proven that they care more about appearances and about what people with money and power think than they do about truth or justice. This is especially vivid and painful just days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade turning a cold shoulder to women as our government has to children after Uvalde. But I took a lot of comfort from your earlier discussion that what we need is not brave children or lone heroes, but for communities to work together and to make lasting change. I hope we see that in the days ahead. And in the meantime, thank you for the comfort and support you offer and the community that you've built. It means so much to so many. Thank you. Eileen, thank you so much for this voicemail. And I will say that I have genuinely been moved by the ways that people have rallied around abortion funds and protests. And, you know, as much as our government is disappointing us, people are still inspiring me. So thank you so much for this. Yeah. And thank you, Eileen, also just for calling our reading to not just look to like what might come, but also to pay attention to what has been happening already. I think that maybe the some of the failures of activism in our own world has been because we're not paying enough attention to what's already going on now. Or people like me, I'll own that statement more, are not paying attention to what's going on now. And your reading of that line is not just being about the the terrible things that come, but also about the terrible things that have already happened is a is a helpful reminder of that. Now's the time in the podcast when we call to mind those members of our community who have been loved and lost. Brian Zinkel, 35, a husband and father of a two-month-old son. Nick Huffman, 82, everyone's uncle, faith-filled, the best hugger. Finesta Sis Perlstein, 99, a mother, grandmother, friend, and firecracker. Eldon Thoreau, 
85. A pastor, husband, father, and grandfather. He loved people and caring for them. Isaiah G. 20. Extraordinarily kind, insightful, funny, and protective. Josh Valencia, 37. A father, sports lover, and friend. Rosa Arias, 85. A matriarch who's patient. Her love saved our listener's life. Gabriel Korobuth, 63. A dad of two, uncle, architect, and cat dad. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, it's time for our blessings now. Who do you want to bless with this last chapter of book three? I want to bless our wonderful Hermione. This is something that you brought up in the chapter, Matt. But I want to bless her for saying that she's going to go back to a regularly scheduled programming of classes. She has just had this really incredible experience with the Time Turner where she she was able to save lives because of it. It was like a deeply magical, heroic thing that she was able to do. And she was like, but this is really bad for me. And I think valuing herself that much, she's going to be able to do so much more good in the long run by, you know, getting sleep again. And I just want to bless her for that wisdom and for that level of self-care. What about you? Who would you like to bless? I think I'm going to bless Remus for reasons we already talked about. You know, I think this job was a godsend to Remus. It was a way for him to build community that he doesn't really get to build and feel useful and like part of a community in a way that he has not been able to. And I think he really felt that and had that and really developed some real, real relationships, both collegially and with the children. And he has to give that up. And I think the reasons he has to give it up are complicated and not all of them are just, but that this blessing is not about that. The blessing is just about him having to do it and him having to let go of it and walk to the gate by himself. And so I want to give him a blessing as he goes and we'll look forward to seeing him again in, in future books. Well, Matt, next week we will be wrapping up book three. We're going to be talking about lines that stick out at us and just general reflections. So we look forward to talking to you all about that then. Just a couple of reminders before we give our thanks. We are doing a romance writing class. We are going to be spending seven weeks preparing to write a romance novel and then writing a romance novel in the month of November alongside NaNoWriMo, a month-long writing community that tries to write a 50,000-word novel in a month. You can find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. And we also are going on tour. You can join us for live shows and you can get tickets for those at HarryPotterSacredText.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. And we are edited and produced by AJ Uramas. Our audio engineer is Erica Wong. And our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Eileen for their voicemail, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper DeKyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and all of you who sent in the names of those you have loved and lost this week. 
and the daughter of some good friends of Colette and mine. Of some good friends of Colette's and mine. <laughs> Got to get the possessive, grammatical possessive correct. Yeah, no, obviously. 